Acts chapter 21. We come now to Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. And what happened there? How he met with the elders of the Jerusalem church and received an assignment that anyone who's been in church a few years would be able to tell you is a really terrible idea. And he doesn't complain about this assignment. He engages in it, apparently, with a cheerful heart. Even though, being Paul, he had to know that it was bound to end in disaster. So, anyway, this passage has bothered me a lot, more than most passages that I preach on. Let's listen to it, and hopefully you will hear why. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, they told Paul through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them one, Nassan of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. They have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. 
concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand, to grapple with the reality that at times suffering is, in fact, your will for us. Lord, don't let us be creatures of comfort. Let us be creatures of Christ who are desirous, above all, to serve him. Give us the countercultural values of the kingdom so that we too would be ready not only to be bound but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we need your help and strength. Strengthen us with might by your spirit in the inner man. Feed us with your word which is able to build us up and give us an inheritance among the brethren. We ask that you would help me to speak powerfully Help us all to submit to your word as we hear it proclaimed. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord, who rules his church through the elders. Amen. Well, at the end of chapter 20, Paul finished entrusting the Ephesus church to God, and he traveled on to Jerusalem. We have the account of that journey as they come across that eastern part of the Mediterranean, back toward Jerusalem. Luke cites some of the places, or mentions some of the places that they stayed, or where they passed on the boat. Then he talks about how they first landed at Tyre, then went to Ptolemaeus, and then went to Caesarea, and from there on to Jerusalem. Now, so far, so straightforward. It's travel narrative. It's when they get to Jerusalem, well, on the way... Paul is warned by prophets, don't go, this will be a disaster. Paul says, no, I have to go, God told me to go. They get to Jerusalem, everything is fine, and then Paul goes before the elders of the Jerusalem church who propose to him this idea, and it's not an idea, it's actually a command, Paul, prove yourself. And that my friends, is the thing that bothered me so much, and it may bother many of you. Those who have been in the church for very long at all know that there is no such thing. You can't prove yourself to church people who have turned against you. It can't be done. The elders call Paul in and say, Paul, we want you to try. Paul says, I will do it. Not because, probably, he thinks it's a good idea, but because he believes in elder rule. He believes that this is the voice of Christ, and therefore, he needs to obey it. As we'll see, through the travel, Luke highlights a number of kingdom values that culminate in the suffering that follows in verse 27 and onward as Paul is arrested And then spends the rest of the book, the final seven chapters, the final quarter of the book, 
in Roman custody, all because he listened to his elders and tried to do something that everyone knows can't be done. Paul did this because he believes in the values of the kingdom. And that shows us the certainty of the kingdom's triumph. The values of the kingdom transcend and overcome the values of the world. The world believes in comfort. The world believes in this is my space, stay out of it. The kingdom doesn't believe in those things. The kingdom believes in hospitality. And because the kingdom believes, well, the kingdom believes in love fundamentally. That is our kingdom value. And therefore we embrace hospitality and we also embrace suffering that comes through submission. Luke highlights over and over and over the love that Paul experienced on this trip. But he also highlights the fact that Paul loved back and that's why he was willing to try to do what the elders said. He was willing to submit to them and he was willing, as he says in so many words, not only to be bound but also to die for the name of Jesus. Remember, Luke is showing us the certainty of the kingdom. The kingdom is real The kingdom is what you've heard. It is the reign of Christ in this world. It can't fail. Here's why it can't fail. He's showing us the values of the kingdom that overcome the world's values because love is stronger than death. Well, let's start at the beginning and we'll work our way through the chapter. Luke describes how they came to Kos, to Rhodes, to Patera, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Syria, Tyre. He mentions all these places that they went, again, to say this was real. This really happened in real history. The kingdom didn't take place in a fantasy land. It took place in the eastern Mediterranean in places that you can still see today. Paul was here. The kingdom of God was here. There are several things that come up repeatedly. The first of these is hospitality. They land at Tyre on that Palestinian coast just north of Israel. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Now there's no record anywhere in Acts of them having been to Tyre before. This was not a place that Paul had visited, a place where he had friends so far as we know. But he finds hospitality. Somebody, well, several people are willing to welcome them in. Finding disciples, we stayed there. Who's this we? Well, Luke tells us in the previous chapter that the we is at least nine people. This is not a small missionary team. Uh, Paul, Luke lists them all in chapter 20, verse 3. So Peter of Berea accompanied him, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, plus Paul, plus Luke. That's a minimum of nine who are on this team. They come to Tyre, and what do they find? They find people who put them up, who show them hospitality. Verse 8, they come to Caesarea, and they enter the house of Philip the Evangelist and stay with him. Now, we don't know how prosperous Philip was, but he certainly had four unmarried daughters, and now he welcomes in nine guys to stay as well. And it happens again in verse 16. Some of the disciples from Caesarea brought with them Nassan of Cyprus, with whom 
we were to lodge. If, now, everyone in this room has the highest respect for Paul. No doubt. But if he called you up and said, I'm bringing eight of my closest friends to stay for a week. Will you put me up? I think several of us would start to say, um, um, you know, I don't have eight vacant beds, nine vacant beds. I, my house is kind of small. I, I tend to use my living room floor from time to time. Uh, I just, I don't know that this is going to work, Paul. My dog doesn't like strangers. Or my house might fall over with all those people in it. Or, right, we all have our excuses. But Luke says the values of the kingdom value hospitality. This is a theme. It happens over and over on Paul's trip. They welcome him in. And it's not just one. It's three different cities, three different churches show this hospitality to Paul's team of nine missionaries who are traveling. We all have an excuse. I have excuses too. Luke doesn't give us room for excuses. Luke doesn't appear to be surprised that Philip and Manasseh are so hospitable. He seems to expect it. Like, yeah, this is what Christians do. This is how disciples are. And what exactly motivates people to be so generous? To let others into their home, which is their castle? Well, the answer is obvious. The answer is the love that exists between Paul and the people that he's ministering to. We just saw it as he leaves Ephesus. When he had said these things, end of chapter 20, verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Right. If you are shaking hands with one of your elders as you leave a church to go on to a different state, a different home, a different calling, and you see a tiny tear in the corner of the eye, you can be impressed. Wow, I made a big impression on these people. When Paul's leaving Ephesus, it's this blub fest. They all just fall on him and they're sobbing like babies, says Luke. Now, as I've mentioned, right, they're Mediterranean peoples. They're not buttoned up northerners. But nonetheless, this is how they act because that's how much they love Paul. And it happens again in verse 5 of chapter 21. After our seven days in Tyre, we went on our way. They all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Now, all of us have been in churches that have hosted a missionary. Has anyone ever been in a church where the entire church with the kids has come out to take the missionary to the airport? Has all followed him out of town, prayed with him on the runway? Doesn't happen. Because... Why? Well, maybe we love just as much as they do and we just pretend not to. Or maybe we don't have as much kingdom love as these early Christians. But regardless, you know, clearly these are people that Paul had never met before and after a week, the whole church is ready to go with him to the beach and see him off. And then it happens a third time. In verse 12, when they're in Caesarea... We heard these things, both we and the Caesareans pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go. Paul, you're going to die. Paul, forget the whole trip. Cancel it. Go back to Ephesus. 
Go on to Rome, go to Spain, go somewhere, anywhere, but don't go to the city that kills the prophets. They're pleading with Paul because they love him. If they didn't care what would happen to him, they'd say, sure, go to Jerusalem. No skin off my nose. But they care because they love Paul. In the face of our culture's obsession with equality, or ancient culture and its obsession with status, we as the church lift up our banner that shows the bleeding hands and has our motto, which is the word love. We aren't about equality. We aren't about status. We are about love. That is the premier value of the kingdom. That's how Paul lived. That's how the other early Christians lived when they said, we want you to live. We're terribly sad that we're never going to see you again. Yes, we will put you and eight of your closest friends up for a week. We don't care. We love you that much. The supreme kingdom value is not equality, not being listened to, not power, not obedience, but love that's manifested in hospitality, weeping, kissing, public displays of affection. That's what Luke records for us here. Do we publicly display friendship, care, and delight in one another? Somebody comes in and visits, do they come away saying, the people in this church love each other, or do they come away saying, I don't know, they didn't appear to have any more love for each other than the people in your standard Walmart line show. That's the question that Luke poses for us by narrating Paul's trip. The third theme in the trip is the kingdom value of prophecy. Paul prophesies in verse 38 of the previous chapter, you will see my face no more. And then there's more prophecy in verse 4. They told Paul, the Tyrians told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. And again in verse 9, Agabus comes and he does this whole thing. He walks up to Paul and takes his belt off, rather aggressive, one would think, but then proceeds to tie him up and say, the Jews are going to tie you up like this. Maybe Agabus ties himself up. I think he more likely ties Paul because you can't really tie your own hands. That doesn't work. But, The message is clear. Paul, bad things are going to happen to you. Now, some have majored on this and said, what's wrong with the Holy Spirit? Why is he saying to the disciples in Tyre, don't go to Jerusalem, but he's telling Paul, go to Jerusalem. The answer is, there's nothing wrong with the Spirit. Paul is just, or Luke is giving the very short version. The Spirit was telling the prophets, Paul will suffer in Jerusalem. And the prophets were taking that message and saying, well, duh, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. If you're going to suffer, stay out of that situation. That's not how Paul understood that message. Paul doesn't say, my life is about avoiding suffering, so you're right. I will not go to Jerusalem. No, he says, my life is about serving Jesus. And if that means going to Jerusalem and suffering, I'm going to do that. Stop trying to tell me otherwise. The church is governed by direct words from Jesus. That's our kingdom value. But those words tell us directly, you're going to suffer if you follow me. Suffering is a kingdom value. 
It's not an American value. We don't hold with suffering. We invented air conditioning here. We put pads on our seats. Right? We believe in comfort in every way, shape, and form. Our clothing, comfortable. Our homes, comfortable. Our cars, comfortable. Our workplaces, comfortable. In fact, you can sue. It's a federal crime, right, to harass someone and make them uncomfortable. Don't do that. Paul says, Luke says, comfort is not a value of the kingdom. Paul does not arrange his life around comfort. Our symbol as Americans might be the eagle with the arrows and the olive branch, but our symbol as Christians is here on the wall behind me. It's a torture machine. Nothing comfy about a cross. I dare say you've never even seen one that someone has tried to upholster. Make a little more comfortable. A cross with pillows, it's still a cross. And Paul was aware of that. Right? Our leader died by mob-demanded state-sponsored violence. That's what happened to Jesus. Before he was killed, he told us that he was sending us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Not, I am sending you out as mattress testers. I am sending you out as air conditioner repairmen. No. The church is not about comfort. And Paul was not about comfort. You and I don't usually take the New Testament warnings about suffering as though they really apply to us. We tend to think, of course, more like the Tyrian Christians and the Caesarean Christians and Luke himself who says he joined in. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem and say... If there's suffering at the end of that path, stay off that path. Or at least, don't go very far down that path. We like to think that the warnings about chains and imprisonment and suffering are there to help us avoid those things. And if I follow Jesus too closely, if I obey him too much, if I talk about him too loudly, I might suffer. So therefore, the obvious solution is, don't talk about him too loudly, don't follow him too hard, and avoid the suffering. Easy peasy. Paul didn't live that way. If we've made the decision that comfort is more important to us than love, we've already left the faith. If we've decided that I can't do anything to put my wealth, my position, my comfort at risk, my family at risk, then we are not where Paul is. We're somewhere else. Paul had to correct church after church on this point. Right? The Tyrians. He corrects them and says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Caesareans. He corrects them and says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. Luke himself joins in. Verse 12. We pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Right? Paul and his eight traveling companions who have come with him all these hundreds and hundreds of miles when they realize what it actually means to go to Jerusalem, turn around and they say, no, Paul, don't do it. We came all this way, but we didn't come all this way to see you suffer. And Paul has to say to them too, you don't get it. Suffering is a kingdom value. Because love is a kingdom value and there is no love without suffering. 
It's like the old joke. Guy says, I love you. And the girl says, would you die for me? And the guy says, oh no, mine is an undying love. Mine is a non-suffering love. I will love you, Jesus, right up until the point where it costs me 20 bucks. Or two drops of blood. And then I will stop loving you. It's not God's will for us to go seek imprisonment and martyrdom. It's not God's will for us to try to walk into suffering for the sake of suffering. But Paul valued suffering because he valued something more than comfort. What did he value more than comfort? He valued submission. Right? What we talked about with the fifth commandment this morning. He valued obedience. And the first thing he had to obey was the will of God. Verse 14, the will of the Lord be done. Paul had resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's back in chapter 19, verse 21. Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit moved Paul to make this decision. Paul knew that this was a call on his life from God himself. And therefore, he obeyed God, despite the prophetic warnings saying, you're going to suffer. Paul says, I know. How many plots on my life have I survived, people? I'm not exactly a babe in the woods here. I've been around this block. This ain't my first rodeo, etc. Paul is probably tired of all the people who haven't survived a lot of death threats coming to him and saying, but Paul, there's danger. And being like, I have danger for breakfast. That's not a boast. That's That's just a fact. So he resolves to be obedient to the will of God. And he also resolves to be obedient to the elders. That's how he sees obedience to God's will, right? He gets to Jerusalem and nothing bad happens. In fact, the brethren received us gladly. Probably Luke and the rest, when they walk through the city limits of Jerusalem, are looking around like, where is it? Where's the trouble? Where are the bad guys? Who's going to jump on Paul and try to stab him right in front of us? And it's just an ordinary happy church meeting. But then, the next day, the hammer drops. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, there's so much here. Right? Paul is coming back to Jerusalem the city where he was educated, the city where he grew up. He's returning home in a certain sense. He's already survived at least one plot on his life in Jerusalem. He remembers very well as he walks into that congregation in Jerusalem. Oh yeah, there's that kid. I hauled his parents off to jail 25 years ago. Oh, there's that woman. Oh, she's still a widow. Yeah, I remember her husband, right? He screamed like a rat. And then... He's looking around and he sees all these people and, of course, they see him. Orphans, widows, people who were mangled or mauled or harmed by him in some way or who had their family destroyed by him. And surely as he walks into that room, he can feel it. That memory of his past as a persecutor. And then he comes to meet with the elders of the church and they say to him, look, Paul, you're theologically suspect around here. 
We don't look at you and say, oh, Paul, the greatest theologian of the church. We look at you and say, some kind of bleeding edge liberal who has taken the Old Testament, wadded it up, and thrown it in the trash. We're not real keen on people who do that around here, Paul. Now, we have to pay attention to the text, right? Some have said, well, James is bishop of Jerusalem. James brings Paul in and says, Paul, here's what you need to do. The text doesn't say that. The text says, they told him, the elders said to him, verse 20, they said to him, right, this is the decision of the body. This is the group saying it. James may have been the spokesman, but it doesn't say that James was the spokesman. It doesn't say that James agreed with them. It's not that James is bishop of Jerusalem and Paul isn't bishop of anything, so James gets to boss Paul around. That's not it. Rather, Paul has come. He's subject to the jurisdiction of the local church. As represented by the elders of Jerusalem. The elders are his elders, and they boss him. They say, everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows or thinks they know what you teach. We want you to prove yourself by paying the expenses of these four men who are under a vow. Pay their expenses so they can shave their heads that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Paul, prove to our church that you're a good Jewish boy and there's nothing goyish, nothing Gentile, nothing liberal in terms of throwing off the Mosaic regulations about you. Now, as somebody less mature than Paul, right? what would I want to say? I would want to say, with all due respect, my elders, that's goofy. Everyone knows that if a church distrusts you, you can't prove yourself. Anything you do to try to prove yourself only makes them distrust you more. Look at him trying to prove himself. He must have something to hide. Right? Every one of you who has left a church has been through that process of Oh, there's the pastor. I'm listening to him. I'm listening to him. I'm listening to him. Now I'm not listening to him. He said something. He's done something. It's the last straw. That trust is broken. I no longer can receive what I'm hearing from this man because and the list goes on and on. X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and on and on and on. Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say, look, I've killed people here. I've hurt people here. They're convinced I'm a heretic, and frankly, if the book of Hebrews doesn't convince them, there is nothing I can do that will convince them, and just watching me trot around the temple is only going to offend them more. Paul doesn't say that. He says, I'll do it. He took them in, went and got purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of their days of purification. And... They were under a vow to offer offerings. Paul had to pay that out of his own pocket. We don't know what these offerings were, but it certainly could have been one or two bulls, a couple of lambs for every, every one of them. Right? So you're talking maybe four bulls, eight or a dozen lambs, some birds. There's not a person in this room who wouldn't feel that in their pocket 
to pay for those animals today. And those animals are certainly no more expensive now than they were in the days of Paul. So in other words, we have to understand what's happening here. The elders call Paul in and they say, Paul, reach, right? Dig deep into that pocket. We want you to financially put yourself towards bankruptcy. You're a working man. You're a blue-collar guy. And we want you to dig into the old money bags and show, prove yourself that you're still just as Jewish as they come. When's the last time your elders called you in and said, we want you to dig in the pocket and prove yourself to this church? It's probably never happened, and it's probably never going to happen. But that is what happened to Paul. That was part of God's extraordinary calling on his life. No doubt. Uh, Paul doesn't fight. He doesn't say, this is stupid. No, I refuse to participate in this nonsense. He doesn't say, this is how you run things in Jerusalem. Well, all I can say is that the Romans can have it. Turn and walk out. Right? He doesn't do that. He submits because he has different values than I do. He has different values than the world does. He doesn't value comfort. He doesn't value ease, personal peace, and prosperity. He frankly doesn't care about the loss of money or the loss of time or the risk that something will go wrong and that he will alienate the Jerusalem church further. He submits to the elders because he loves God. He's not afraid of suffering. And he's willing to do what his elders tell him because he knows, as he wrote to the other churches, honor your elders. Do what they tell you. Right? This is an area where they have jurisdiction over his pocket, over his time, over his participation in Jewish rites. And Paul recognizes that and he submits. You see why I had trouble with this passage? It challenges us. It pokes us right in our favorite idol of comfort and says, how much do you really fear God? How much do you really want to serve Jesus? How much are you really willing to give up? Paul had made his choice long ago. Verse 13, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Luke's final verdict on the values of the kingdom and whether they work. The answer is yes, they do work. Paul is going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, but Luke doesn't pull the camera away and say, oh, whoops, I'm trying to tell you about the kingdom's certainty. Don't watch that, folks. Luke says, you want to see the certainty of the kingdom? Here, let's zoom in on Paul in prison for seven chapters because he submitted to the elders. Let's stay with this saga right up to him being in Rome in prison. Because this shows the certainty of the kingdom. How? Well, as I said at the beginning, because the values of the kingdom overturn the world's values. And a kingdom that values love 
is a kingdom that's stronger than death. Is a kingdom that's stronger than pain. That's the kingdom that Paul served. That's the kingdom that Jesus built. And that's the kingdom that you and I are called to live in. Do you believe in these five values of the kingdom, and especially the values of love and suffering? Both of these values are under attack. Right? How do they attack love? Not in the frontal attack, telling you that love is bad, but the side attack, the flank attack, telling you that love simply means doing whatever you feel like. I saw it at Walmart yesterday, the rainbow plate. With the banner across it that said, love is love is love is love is love is love. We all know what that means. And it doesn't mean love is patient, love is kind, love does not vaunt itself, is not arrogant or rude. The value of love is under massive attack today. The value of suffering is under massive attack today. We're assured by those who know that all suffering is illegitimate, that pain is the worst evil, that a rightly ordered society avoids unpleasantness at all costs by letting everyone do what they want because love is love is love is love is love. And that's not how God ordered society in the garden. There was quite a bit of unpleasantness there with the serpent. It's not how God ordered his son's life on earth. There was quite a bit of unpleasantness relating to the whole crucifixion by a deranged mob and spineless Roman authorities. Through that death, Jesus conquered. He beat Satan by taking the punishment of sin on himself. We beat Satan by being conformed to the death of Jesus as well. The one who would save his life will lose it. That's why Paul was willing to lose his life and find it. He didn't want to lose his life. He was willing to confess Christ where it was least safe to do so. Are we? The kingdom is present, for sure, when we all slap each other on the back in here and affirm and congratulate each other on being Christians. That is part of the kingdom. And Luke mentions that in various places. The disciples were much encouraged when they all got together in fellowship. But the kingdom is also present when we're placed in chains and hauled off to suffer. Jesus rules even there, and that's the last seven chapters of Acts. That's where the kingdom is. The kingdom will win. Look beyond suffering to the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to value these kingdom values of hospitality, of prophecy, of love, of suffering, and of submission. Give us the grace to be hospitable to be sufferers even, because we love. Lord, we can't do this without your Son who did it for us. Unite us to him by faith that we might be like him, love like him, live like him, lose our life for him so that we can save it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.